You are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie, and even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, oh my gosh, we could not be more different. I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, borderline antisocial, and scared to death when Amy says she has an idea because that usually spells trouble and or work for me. Well, you know that I'm an idea person, so you knew that going in. You knew that. You are the idea person. I'm Amy, and I want to be your new best friend, especially if you're a book lover, and maybe even if you aren't. I'm also a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict, although I'm trying to cut back, and I treat a good yard sale like it's a national treasure. Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other, and sometimes a special guest about books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading, as well as other bookish things like authors in the news recent book to film adaptations weird stuff we've googled while reading and our tbr count we're so glad you've joined us our guest this week kika hazapulu grew up in greece with the foundation of ancient greece and its mythology all around her she now lives in london and until recently was an acquisitions editor for a greek publisher where she read and recommended books being published in the u.s and britain for acquisition and translation for greek audiences She tinkered with the idea of writing a book herself, combining the Greek mythology stories she learned as a child with the detective stories and gritty noir that she loves reading. The result is Threads That Bind. So the novel is about three sisters who are descendants of the fates, and they're also known as the Morai, M-O-R-A-I, the three mythological sisters who hold everyone's destinies in their hands via threads. Io is the youngest sister, and she's a private investigator who discovers that someone is kidnapping women tampering with their threads, and essentially turning them into zombies. She has numerous potential suspects from Greek mythology, the Furies, the Honoroi who control dreams, the Graces who bestow artistic gifts on humans, and the Charis who are the spirits of violent death. It is a novel that opens up a world of mythological characters you may not know much about. A sequel to Threads That Bind, titled Hearts That Cut, comes out in the summer of 2024. And in addition to being our novelist guest, she also serves as this season's global reader since we talked to her about Greek education and writers, and she also turns the tables on us during The Fast and the Furious, the first guest to ever have done so, and we were a little unprepared. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Of course, I think if every guest started doing this, I would still be unprepared, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) So, Carrie, uh, before we get too far into this, I just want to tell all of our listeners uh, about the Louisville Book Festival that's coming up November 10th and 11th at the Kentucky International Convention Center in downtown Louisville. They have just posted the list of authors who will be there. I think that their headliner author is Jermaine Fowler, who is the New York Times bestselling author of The Human Archive, who also happens to be a a Louisville guy. Uh, But there'll, there'll be lots of great authors there. And you and I are going to be on a panel about podcasting with some other bookish podcasts. Yep. I'm excited. We were at the Louisville Book Festival last year. Uh, If you're in the area, if you're in the region, definitely suggest you come out. It's free. Yeah. What's better than that? Lots of books to choose from. Although I really still have 
I think of the books I bought last year, I've only read one of them. I really need to like get on it and read those really quickly so that I can justify. Although really, do I need, do I need a justification for buying more books at a book festival? Not really. No, maybe we should do an episode soon where we each read one of the books that we got at the Louisville Book Festival. That would be a good idea. But maybe like a, a little segment about it or what we are reading should be that book for that, for that time, you know? Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. Okay. A goal. We've got a goal. <laughs> I, I do love a goal. <laughs> All right. So, you know, normally, Amy, you're the one who's a gad about, you know, doing social things and, uh, and I am the one who's doing nothing. I am fully committed to my doing nothing, but you know, we were talking about, man, what have we been doing? What I mean, and by we, I mean you, because what do we have to talk about? I know I've been falling down on the job with collecting uh, bookish trivia for us to yeah. talk about in our opener. Woo. What, what, what can we what can we discuss? Well, it's not that we don't have anything to discuss. It's just thinking about things that might be possibly interesting to listeners, right? <laughs> That's true. We could we could talk about cheese or something for a very long time, but nobody else would find that nearly as, as entertaining as we do. Well, I will say I want some help from our listener public here. I have a car. I've, I've had it since or 2020. So it's not... I mean, it's not like a brand new car. It's a Honda CRV. It's red. And I love this car. I've never loved a car like I love this car. I don't really know why I love it so much. Just everything about it is kind of perfect for me. It's got like room in the back to like haul things. It's comfortable. It's kind of a smart car. So it's it's got all the fancy panels on the front. I just really love this car. And in fact, I don't really, I'm kind of protective of this car. I really don't like other people driving it, especially not my kids, even though, you know, occasionally I have to let them drive it for various reasons. To be honest, and I hope my husband doesn't listen to this episode, I really don't even like my husband to drive the car, even though he's probably a better driver than me. I just really like this car. And it occurred to me, you know, you hear about people giving their cars a name and I have never done that and thought it was kind of stupid. And I think I want to name my car. Although now you think I'm kind of stupid. Yeah. I'm giving you the Kristen wig look, <laughs> which actually I, I kind of send you a lot of gifts of her giving you do. that look. Which shows how much you think about my ideas, but I need some help coming up with a good name for her. So I thought it would be cool if it was a literary name, but it has to be somebody who's kind of a, I want her to be strong and sassy and a little bit of a badass, but nice. Like, can you think of any characters like that of books that I like? I don't know. Anyway, your listeners, tell me, tell me what I should name my car. I mean, the first name that popped into my head is Bertha. Bertha? No, <laughs> my God. Now, 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 hear me out. Hear me out. Okay, Bertha from Jane Eyre, who is the woman who's locked in Mr. Rochester's attic. It's his wife, who I I'm, I really need to reread that book because the older I get, the more I appreciate Bertha for being like mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. So okay. she's kind of a badass in my book. I'm sorry I, if you I don't see like the that. Name Bertha, but I don't like the name. I do not like the name Bertha. Even though I agree with what you're saying, I just can't name my 
car Bertha. I just can't. It's a name from like my grandmother's generation. I just can't get over it. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, you're going to get some angry emails from <laughs> from the vast multitude of listeners we have named Bertha. I'm sorry for any Berthas out there. Yeah. Uh, what about Francis? Francis or Francie might work because I love the tree. A tree grows in Brooklyn. Uh, you don't love it. When I hear the name Francie, I don't think of that book. Hmm. Like I think of a, a timid little girl. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'll keep thinking on it. I, I'm taking suggestions. <laughs> All so right. Well, I, that'll give me something to do. Come up with a name for your car. <laughs> like, like you want to spend any brain width on that? No, no, not really. Not really. Not brain width. Bandwidth, like you want to spend any bandwidth on that. Brainwidth, uh, that's a new term. I like that. <laughs> Brainwidth. <laughs> maybe some of our listeners know, but maybe not maybe not all of them. You have like a skeleton collection on your front porch. I do. Yeah. You started out with one who you named Gerald, and now you have like a dog and a cat and like a little Gerald, and I don't know I, who else. Okay. But I was walking in my neighborhood the other day and uh-huh. I saw a little octopus skeleton. Mm. And I thought, I have got to find out where these people got this because you need to add that to your collection. I know. I know. So right now I have a I have two three foot Geralds. I have a, a dog Gerald. I have a duck Gerald. I have a five foot Gerald. I have a tiny little baby Gerald, and then I have maybe a 12-inch Gerald, I think. Oh, and then I have two spider Geralds. You brought me two spider Geralds. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, so here's the thing about the Geralds. What has happened is, okay, and they are all skeletons, right? I mean, I just call them Geralds because I was too lazy to come up with names for all of them. But this morning, my cousin in Atlanta sent me an Instagram, whatever thing. And it was about a kid, like a little two-year-old who insists that the parents take the five foot skeleton everywhere. So he goes to the park and he goes to the grocery and he goes (laughs) everywhere. Right. So when she said to me, she's like, look, he's got a Gerald. And so I was thinking about this because now every time somebody talks to me, about a skeleton. They don't call him a skeleton. They call him a Gerald. Yeah. Which is in a weird way. Yeah. Have you ever read the book Frindle? It's a kid's book. My kids read Frindle. I'm not sure I read Frindle. Okay. Well, I, it is sort of like that novel in that in the novel, the boy starts calling a pencil a Frindle. And he's basically trying to get everybody to start calling pencils instead of calling them pencils, call them Frindles. You know, he's trying to change language and he's like, well, I just want to see if, if it'll happen, if I can get enough <laughs> enough crowdsourcing this to call pencils friendles. And I thought about it and I was like, okay, I'm having my own little friendle movement here. You are. Because I have people who will post, they'll post pictures of a skeleton, but they say, hey, Carrie, I found a Gerald. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that is so crazy. That, it's crazy that... and cool. Who wrote Friendle again? Andrew Clements. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, your Gerald's, Gerald and company, yeah. stay out all year long. Yes, they do. You're, you're a little quirky like that. I am. Let me just say, that mother who gave in to that child and takes that skeleton everywhere, yeah. kudos to you. Yeah. I would have just been, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
I'm not doing that. Yeah. That is too much freaking work to yeah. take that skeleton everywhere. Yeah. But I love it that that parent did. Yeah. All right. So, you know, we've been talking about my Gerald's that stay out all year long, but you know, now it's seasonally appropriate, right. For me to have them out because we are like edging ever closer to October spooky season. And you know, at Kika's book, it's not scary, but because it's talking about like these, these women who have their life threads manipulated and they kind of become zombies. And she's talking to a lot of these mythological characters. It does sort of have a little bit like just like a cozy, spooky feel, which I think is sort of appropriate to kind of get us closer to October. Well, and you have a pack of skeletons and it sounds like there are various packs of powerful gangs of Greek entities, yeah, entities, entities. Yeah. floating around in this story. So yes, for sure. You know, I like that, that you said that about my skeletons. They're a powerful pack, a powerful band of skeletons on my front porch. Although I think that, that what Kika has imagined in her novel Threads That Bind is even cooler than my pack of skeletons, my pack of Gerald. So let's, let's talk to Kika. We're so excited to welcome Kika Hazapulu to our show. Uh, she's in London and I read her book, Threads That Bind. It's been a little while, but I love a mythology retelling, although this isn't really a retelling. It's more like a complete reimagining, which I, I loved it just as much as I love retelling. So Kika, we're so glad you're here to talk about your book. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, podcasts are some of my favorite things to do for publicity, and I have enjoyed all of them, and I'm certain that I will enjoy this one. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I have to say the cover of your book is quite beautiful. So if for no other reason, I mean, people should definitely read your book, but they should definitely check out the cover. But this is a debut YA young adult novel for you, Threads the Bind. And it, it, as Carrie said, it isn't really a retelling of a Greek myth or character, like some books like Circe by Madame Miller. Rather, it's a story about characters who are descendants of Greek mythological characters like the Fates and the Furies. So why were these characters ones that you wanted to share with readers? So the idea for the story first came to me when I realized I could combine two of my biggest loves, which are detective stories and the Greek fates. And I thought it would be very interesting to explore a murder mystery uh, through the eyes of a detective that could see the threads that connect people to the things they love and she could like discern uh, suspects and clues better. And because the fates are part of a trio of sisters, and sisterhood uh, plays a big part as a theme in the story, I then decided to only include sibling deities in this world of Greek myth, but also world myth. So these characters that are usually side characters in modern and ancient literature, and I wanted them to have center stage in my story. So it was very fun to explore sibling characters like the Fates, the Muses, the Furies, the Honorary through a modern and like gritty noir lens. You're Greek. And so we're curious about what you were taught growing up Greek in terms of your mythological heritage. And I ask that because for American audiences, 
most people, you know, are sort of taught about the fates and they're taught about the furies. Your book, at least to me, and I like to think I'm pretty, you know, well-versed, but a whole slew of families of characters that I had never heard of. So, and I'm probably going to botch the pronunciation of these, but the Carries and then the Onoroi. Yeah, I say Oniri, which is it's the Greek word for them, but I'm not sure how an English speaker would pronounce it. Okay. And then the Hore and the Asclepsis. So I had never heard about any of those. In the United States, we learned about the Fates of Furies. We learned about some of the Greek gods and some particular characters like Orpheus and Eurydice. So I'm curious about, are these taught as part of your education system or just as family stories? How did you learn about them? Okay, uh, this is a very good question because <laughs> I have a very long answer. Greece, obviously, is a very different beast than ancient Greece. But mm-hmm. ancient Greek, the language as well as the culture is a big part of education right now. We were taught the myths as young kids. And of course, they were very fun to read and treat it as myths and mythology. But Myths and gods are also pretty much everywhere in Greece. There are ruins scattered around our cities. There are uh, common phrases we use in our language. There are theater shows every year of the classic Greek tragedies and uh, comedies. As a child, I loved myths and gods and all their mischief. But later in high school, one of the hardest school classes we had was ancient Greek, which we were taught as a language. So grammar, syntax, translation, and you'll be surprised to know how different ancient Greek is to modern Greek. So it got complicated after that because the myths and all of these side characters that appear in pretty much every ancient Greek text were taught to us in a way that wasn't as joyful. We had to do translating and we had to do like a grammar exercise, a syntax exercise. So the text itself, I think, in the way it was taught, took on the meaning of like, we need to get prepared for the test. We need to analyze it in a different way and not just enjoy the reading of it. So it sounds like when you were learning about some of these characters from ancient Greece, it was more... Not, I don't want to say clinical, but kind of in a way, like you weren't able to fully immerse yourself in the fun of the stories as much as the translation aspect of it. Yes, yes, precisely. And because uh, like our SATs, well, mine at least, had to do with ancient Greek as the language and as the translation of it. It was indeed very clinical and it, it had to do with grades. It had to do with scores. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. as fun as the first myths I was taught as a young child. But then I knew all of the characters you mentioned. And while I was writing this novel, I started researching it more and figuring out which of the myths and which of the iterations of this myth I could use in the book. Interesting. So it stuck with you enough that it sort of was in the back of your mind, floating around there. You know, when I was reading it, I was so fascinated by it. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Why why do I not know any of these? So your explanation makes me feel a little bit better. (laughs) Some of these I didn't even know myself. So for example, the the Oniri, I knew of 
Morpheus as a god, but I wasn't aware that he had uh, brothers. So that was new Mm. to me too. It's very cool. I mean, mythological retellings have become so popular. Like right now for fun, I'm reading Stone Blind, which is sort of like a a retelling of Medusa and, and Perseus. And so I love them. But with your book, I felt like I was opening up this whole new world of potential exploration that it was like, oh, I've never heard of so many of these. And and I sort of loved the newness of that and what is possible in terms of me learning about more Greek characters. Uh-huh. So that was fun. I'm very glad. I'm very happy to hear you say that because it was one of my main goals starting to include gods that are not as widely known and are usually side characters in other books and stories. Your novel, and you mentioned this, is it's about three sisters, descendants of the fates. So why were the fates, in particular the group that you wanted to give special attention to? So what is it about them in particular, since you mentioned these other families of characters, why did you want to have them be your focus? What inspired that? Uh, I think uh, the fates are fascinating. I think they have uh, all this power, like literally power over life and death. And yet they are usually side notes in like heroes quests or even in modern retellings. They are like the, the mentor or the deus ex machina that helps. And I thought it would be very interesting to explore a story centered on a character with these powers and explore the choice between destiny and choice, uh, especially in the romance in the book, and the complicated dynamics between uh, people and see them through the lens of someone who can see and touch and alter the threads that connect us to the things we love. And at some point, as I mentioned a bit earlier, I realized I could combine this fascination with my love of detective stories and how cool it would be to give this detective the power of the fates and a very cool but complicated power of being able to see the threads that connect their suspects and witnesses. In the story, there are these characters that their threads are partially cut. They're almost like zombies. Yeah, they kind of are. Life thread, the thread that connects them to life, which is one of the main uh, mythologies around the fates, has been severed. So it exists. It's like laying limp on the floor, but it's cut. It doesn't connect them to life any longer. They're kind of like half dead. Is there any sort of story in Greek mythology where that happens? Or was that something that you thought, oh, that would be kind of cool to to like cut them. You can still see them, but they're still like hanging out. I'm not sure if there's a story. If there is, I wasn't familiar with it before I wrote like the opening chapters, which was, which has remained intact until now. I think I wrote it in mm-hmm. 2018 and it kind of set the mood for the entire book. So like uh, both these murderers and their intentions and the otherworldly nature of their threads, as well as the world, and the kind of like post-apocalyptic setting. But yeah, it wasn't, I don't think it was inspired by any particular myth or like story. Uh, well, I, I sort of love that because I guess when I think about the, the fates, it's like if it's cut, 
that's it, you know, and if it's not cut, then you go on living. And so you, your story is for, for some of these characters, it's like this weird in between, which was, which is part of the mystery, you know, which is part of why are they like this? How did this happen? What's going on? And so I felt that that was very propulsive and I wanted to, to keep reading. So I, I love that about the story as well. Thank you. So you mentioned that you're a big fan of detective stories. What were the challenges of writing that type of story? And do you have some favorite detective writers or novels? Okay, I love detective stories. And recently, one of my favorites was this Vicious Games, I think it's called, by Joel Wellington. It was a fantastic murder mystery or like thriller that has to do with a girl trying to win back here. A spot at an Ivy League university by participating in this very boozy, posh set of games with other girls. And then I, I of course, love all of the why like modern classics, like uh, Good Girl's Guide to Murder, Suddenly Murder. I love like Hitchcock films, the classics like Rear Window. And I love noir stories in general, like there's aesthetics and the themes and all of the tropes that make up the genre. And uh, for this story, as soon as I realized I could combine Greek myth with a detective story, I started researching the noir subgenre, and it was a deep dive, <laughs> like multiple hours spent on TV tropes, uh, researching uh, the Greek noir urban setting, the clues and red herrings, the archetypical characters like mob bosses, femme fatales, corrupted politicians. And it was a lot of fun to create the world. It was during uh, the summer, I want to say 2019. And I remember I would wake up every day and I would think, what is the most interesting thing you can write today? Which characters can you place in this world? Can I make the graces uh, manipulative? Can I make the muses greedy patrons of the art, make the gods of dreams, the honorary, like provide a luxury sleeping experience. <laughs> the downfall to that approach, the challenge to writing a detective story in this way was that I ended up with a very messy first draft and had to go back in subsequent edits and like tie it all together. I think one of the main points I worked on with both my agent before the book sold and with my editor after the book sold, was ensuring that all of these nefarious characters I had created had their own motivation for getting involved in the murder and for being suspects. Threads That Bind covers a lot of territory, but sisterhood and the figurative threads that bind them informs the story. So talk a little bit about the sisterhood between the Aura sisters. And do you have sister relationships that sort of informed your story? I do. I am the oldest of four siblings, two of which are much younger than me. So I've grown up feeling something between the mother and a sister to them, especially when they were uh, babies. Mm -hmm. And I think that dynamic is very interesting and very complicated. Uh, generally, siblinghood and sisterhood is so very complicated. And I wanted to explore that in the book by making Thais, which is uh, Ayo's older sister, basically a mother to her in many ways. And... I think the theme of sisterhood started with 
the decision to center the story on the fates and the three sisters that have inherited their powers. And I wanted to reflect how complicated real life is in their relationships and how sisterhood and siblinghood in general is like a unique bond with ups and downs uh, because essentially these are people that have come from the same place, but they have not all had the very same experience. And at the same time, they all grow together. I don't want to spoil anything, but I did know who the villain was going to be very early on. And I did know that Ayo's arc in the book was going to be growing into her own, like setting her boundaries, reshaping her relationship with her sisters. So I'm wondering, why did you decide to make your characters YA rather than than adult women? Well, it's a fun fact. For a while, this book was adult. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. I initially wrote it as a YA. And after another agent, not the one uh, I signed with, requested revise and resubmit, I aged uh, IO up to 21. And uh, the argument was that IO has a job and she leaves, she has a job and leaves in a very gritty modern world. But ultimately, after I signed with my agent and just before we decided which publishers to send the book to, we came to the decision to age her back to 18. And I think it, mm. it was a good decision. And I think at its core, her Aya's arc and the emotional journey of the book is a very teenage experience. She comes into her own, she casts away her shame and guilt like that her upbringing created. And also the romance is very much a first love, first experience of falling in love. I think to me, it was uh, the right decision. So many of the stories about heroes, they're not people in their 30s. They're essentially teenagers, you know, or maybe maybe older teenagers. But that's sort of when they're going through a lot of these trials and and their hero arcs. So it, it, it's appropriate, I think, in terms of sort of the history of the myths. That's true. But also I think that especially regarding like adults reading YA, I think that the first experiences are so important to us. And even if we've gone past them, we haven't really. There are new experiences all the time. And reading about them with that naivete of a teenager is very rewarding to us. As readers, we feel both that we haven't grown and that we have grown. (laughs) I don't know if I'm explaining Mm -hmm. it well. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you because I like reading uh, young adult novels and I find something in them sort of refreshing that I don't always get in an adult novel. So I agree with you about that. Even though, you know, I'm obviously an adult, I'm 50, but I still get something different from a YA novel than I get from a straightforward adult targeted novel. I agree. I agree. We're going to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about your book, but but I want to understand a little bit more about you as a reader. So do you have a favorite Greek myth or a, a favorite retelling of a myth? Um, I think I love Orpheus and Eurydice a lot. I saw Hades Town a couple of uh, mm-hmm. months ago, and I loved that uh, retelling. And some of my favorite YA books recently were... 
lore by Alexander Braken, which I thought was very inventive and very fast-paced and fun. And I'm also currently in the middle of Girl Goddess Queen by B. Fitzgerald, which is a UK release. It's a Hades and Persephone rom-com, which I'm loving so far. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's very fun. It's it's extremely fun. And I think B also reinvents the myth in a way we haven't seen before. Hades Town, that's the Broadway show, right? Is that based yeah. on a book, I wonder? is that Or is that just a dramatic retelling? I, I have no idea. I think know? it's a... Based- I think it's an original story. It's uh, yeah. basically all okay. Eurydice, but also Hades and Persephone play a part. Hermes is there. It was very, very unique. And the, the songs were great fun. And the ending was so bittersweet and sad and hopeful. Did I you see it. that one, Carrie? Yeah, yeah, I did. And Kika, in the United States, like a lot of times what students are taught in terms of like when they learn about a lot of the Greek myth, it's from the, I think it was the Edith Hamilton book. It's just full of, of the Greek stories. There's a a mythology book by Edith Hamilton Mm -hmm. and, and the stories are good, but I think because, and this is for me, at least I could read those stories, but they didn't stick. And I think there must be something about the way my brain works, that if it's like a short story, the glue doesn't hang on to it very well. And so for me, it's like, in order for the stories to really stick with me, I need something longer. But part of what I loved about Hades Town, I mean, I knew the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, but seeing it and the singing and the acting and the dancing and everything, it sort of made that story stick with me so much better. Yeah, than than just hearing the story. And I think that's part of the reason I really love a lot of these novel length reimaginings or retellings, because I feel like it's like an adhesive that sticks in my brain so much better than just, you know, a quick three or four page story ever has, even though, you know, the Edith Hamilton, that's, that's a great introduction. For me personally, I've always needed just a little bit more to to hang on to so yeah i'd agree and i think it's a uh, full-length stories or shows or movies allow you to like really go into the characters and the themes and like the emotion behind the, the story right rather than just completely the plot this happens this happens this happens yeah that's true yeah was there a book from your childhood that m- made you love books or made you a reader Okay, these are different answers. The books that made me a reader and subsequently a writer were The Princess Diaries. Ah. I, I read the first three in Greek. And then the fourth, the rest of the series, in fact, were um, never going to be translated. And I asked my parents, I begged them to get me the, the English versions. So that's how I started teaching myself how to read in English and then like writing uh, fan fiction of uh, Meg Cabot's uh, works and then slowly, very slowly teaching myself how to write in English and write well and like perfect my craft as I went. So then the first part of your question, if there was a book that had an impact on me, I think one of the biggest ones that shaped my writing and the stories I tell was The Forest of Hands and Teeth by Carrie Ryan. 
It was very dark and very emotional, and it discussed faith in such a nuanced way, and uh, all in the context of a zombie story. And I remember oh. thinking, uh, we can write about that, we can talk about that. It really saved the way I see stories and what the limits of fiction, fantasy fiction, why fiction are. And it's called The Forest of Hands and Teeth? Yeah. It's, oh, it's I've never real. heard about that. And so you said that you, you know, you read the fourth of the Princess Diaries in English. So when you read now, do you tend to read in English or in Greek? I read in English mostly. I don't think I've read anything in Greek that wasn't like an original Greek book. So by a Greek author uh, that has no translation. But yeah, I read in English. I've read in English since I was probably 14, 15 it feels much more natural to me, both in reading and in writing. Hmm. You write your books in English as well. You don't start out writing in a Greek and then sort of translate it over. No, no. Yeah, that would I be a lot of extra work, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even translate from English to Greek. So like the um, threads that bind that sold for the publisher I worked for in Greece uh, they offered me to do the translation, and I was like, no, I don't think I have the skill for it anymore, and my skill is in English now. Oh, so oh, they hired wow. someone else to do the Greek translation. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's 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 interesting. So, you you know, you work in foreign publishing. Are you a translator? What, what, what do you do in that regard? Right now, I mostly do freelance reading, but uh, my big job for the past like four or five years was truly fantastic. I was an acquisitions manager for a Greek publisher, which meant I read all submissions from foreign markets. So the US, the UK, France, pretty much all of Europe and beyond. I wrote reports and then suggested whether we should acquire Greek rights of these books to my boss. And it was a wonderful job. It was basically reading and like taking stock of the trends abroad as well as in Greece. And I'm very proud of some of the books uh, we acquired and published during my time there, like Simon and the Homo Sapiens Agenda, All Our Hidden Gifts, um, Jenny Han, Patrick Ness, many, many others. Oh, wow. That kind of job, there's a hidden kind of power in that, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. it's a little bit like a gatekeeper of a sort. And I'm very happy that Simon and the Homo Sapiens Agenda, when we published it, I believe it was the first gay YA rom-com. Has, it has been doing better, but it's a little bit conservative, like religiously conservative country. Do you, do you often read any Greek authors? Um, sometimes, yeah. Uh, my partner writes in Greek and English, and I read both of his work. Um, I have other friends that write. There are wonderful Greek authors writing in sci-fi right now. Um, some of them have been uh, published in like the big U.S. sci-fi fantasy magazines and have been like nominated for the Nebula and the World Fantasy Awards. I've read the, their stories as well. Some of them are in uh, English as well. That's great that there's sort of this burgeoning sci-fi culture going on there. That's really awesome. We're going to take a little break now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. 
We are back with Kika Hazapulu. She is the author of Threads That Bind. And we are going to talk about what we are reading. So, Carrie, and I know that you say that your reading is going to slow down, but for right now, it seems like you were blowing me out of the water on our book list. So what have you been reading? I have been reading, listen to it as an audiobook, and it's called What Bees Want, Beekeeping as Nature Intended by Susan Nylans. Now, I do not keep bees. Uh, that is sort of like this fantasy life that I would like to have where I have enough land that I could keep bees. But I do try to sort of make my yard inviting to bees. That's part of the reason I'm very much into native plants and less lawn and stuff like that. So I thought this book was interesting and it was also not terribly long. The book is about preservation beekeeping, which I didn't even know what this is, but it's very different from what we traditionally see from beekeeping. So usually when you think of beekeeping or most Americans think of beekeeping, they think of the square white boxes that are kind of up on blocks and the inserts that are rectangular. And that's what the the bees put the honey and the honeycomb in. They sort of look like furnace filters. That's what most Americans think of as beekeeping. But bees don't really love that system. You know, you've heard about the decimation of honeybees. The, the premise of this book is that part of the reason why honeybee populations have declined so much is because of what humans are doing to them. If we sort of let them do what they are good at doing, they have the immune function and the ability to sort of take care of themselves. So for example, bees do not love the rectangular, these square and rectangular boxes. What they like is sort of this circular or spherical shape of hives. Uh, so if you think about, you know, like the hives that you see up in trees, well, that's where bees like to live. They like to live up in trees in those spherical hives. And so it, it was interesting to read about beekeeping that's less about getting honey from the bees and more about preserving their health so that they're able to pollinate the flowers and do all those things that help us, uh, not so much the production of honey. It, it sounds like it's a lot of work, but preservation beekeeping is where you let the bees do what they want to do and you're not constantly taking the lid off the hive and checking. And because all that tinkering, bees are so in tune with each other and they're so uh, focused on the temperature of the hive and the moisture level of the hive. And every time somebody opens up the lid of a of one of those square hives, it takes about three or four days for the bees to sort of undo what humans have done by just even opening up the top of the hive. Hmm. The the person who wrote it, Susan Nylans, has studied bees for a long time. She's been a longtime beekeeper. I think she's up in the Pacific Northwest. It's more like an appreciation book where you can learn a little bit about bees. It's not, you know, the step-by-step, -step, here's what you need to do to be a preservation beekeeper. But it sort of introduced me to this idea of what preservation beekeeping is and how humans we sort of, we're really good at mucking things up <laughs> for, for nature. That's interesting. I have never heard of preservation beekeeping. My dad kept bees when I was a mm -hmm. kid. Uh, and in fact, he like even invented a honey extractor that 
had a patent with the patent office with the government. So he was really into bees uh, for a while. And I've never heard. I wonder if they just need to make a circular. Maybe they just need to make a circular hive. You mean humans? Yeah. I mean, I know the whole point is just not to bother them. I get that. But that's probably never actually going to happen. Do you think? I mean, that we're never going to. You were just say, oh, yeah, just go about your business. We don't need this, honey. We don't need that, honey. Yeah, we don't need this. Right. But it did make me think a little bit differently, you know, because when I am out in the garden and looking at my flowers and I'll see a bee, like in my head, I automatically assume that they're Uh honeybees. But, you know, honeybees aren't native to the United States. So part of it, you know, what they think is that honeybees, because they're not native to here, they're sort of at a disadvantage. Reading the book just made me pay a little bit more attention to like when I'm looking at my flowers and I see an insect on them, is it a native? Is it a honeybee? Like what actually is it? I really like this book because it was a a quick, it was about five hours, but it introduced me to a topic that I'm interested in, didn't really know anything about, and only know marginally more now. But I, I just found it fascinating. So anyway, it's called What Bees Want, Beekeeping as Nature Intended by Susan huh, Nyland. Okay. Well, Kika, what have you been reading? Uh, first of all, thank you for suggesting that. I love bees and I one of my hobbies is looking up videos of beehive rescues. Oh, yeah. If you've seen Oh, cool. I love them so much. And <laughs> I went into a rabbit hole recently and found out how queen bees adapt to a new hive and what it takes for them to like dominate over the worker bees. It's a lot. I love them. Uh, but thank you. Um, well, good. That was the perfect book for you to talk about, Karen. <laughs> it was. It really was. Thank you. Okay. Can I do a few recommendations instead of one? Sure. Of course. Okay. One book I always love to recommend, it's a trilogy, is Naomi Novik's uh, Scholomans Trilogy, The uh, Deadly Education, The Last Graduate, and The Golden Enclaves. I think they are the height of fantasy literature. Uh, we get a very voicey, very sarcastic, very funny main character who's kind of like the evil witch but is actually like the kindest creature out of the entire bunch. And it's sent in a sentient magical school that it keeps trying to kill its students. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic. The whole trilogy is fantastic. So it's a dark and academia book. Kind of, yeah. And she's, um, I think she's like 17, 16 when it starts, but it's published by an adult publisher. And then uh, I mentioned Girl Goddess Queen by B. Fitzgerald, which I'm reading now, the Hades and Persephone rom-com. Very fun, very inventive in its uh, world and the way it uses mythology. And recently I also loved another YA fantasy, uh, which was called The Prison Healer by... I think Lynette Noni is her name, which is about this healer, this doctor in a very deadly prison and all of the things he has to do to keep one of her inmates, a rebel queen, alive. I really loved that one. It was so well-paced. It was one of those books you pick up and don't put down until you've read the end. Hmm. Do you primarily read YA? Um, I read a bit of everything. 
I don't okay. read as much nonfiction as I would like. I read YA, I read uh, adult, I read uh, rom-coms, I read thrillers. Nonfiction is not my forte, but I have been recommended uh, some very good books lately from uh, you guys as well <laughs> as other friends. <laughs> and I think it would be a good opportunity to start. All right. Well, Amy... You've been keeping tabs on on what I've been reading. I have been keeping no tabs on what you're reading. So hit us, I, hit us I with it. I just finished yesterday a book called Wesley Yorstad Goes Outside by Stephanie Hunter. And this one, I came across it. And it's just a really great example of the quality of books that are coming out from small independent presses. The big publishers are great, but independent presses are doing a wonderful job of finding little gems that those big publishers might overlook. And so I was initially drawn to this book because of its subject matter, which is agoraphobia. Uh, and that's a phobia of going outside one's home. Uh, and I have a little bit of a personal connection to this because my mother for a while, when I was a child, suffered from this. And I really believe it was an extension of some postpartum depression that she had after my sister was born, but she didn't often want to leave the safety of our house. And I remember finding that really confusing as a kid. But my mother's phobia was nowhere near as severe as our protagonist in this book. So this novel is about Wesley Orstad, who lives in Denver, Colorado, and he's not left his apartment in five years. He has agoraphobia partially because of a very traumatic event that happened to him, but also because he just has some untreated mental illness, and he has since he was a child. He has a case of OCD in addition, and he's super concerned about death, about risk, about germs. And all of this is to say that Wesley sees very few people. Uh, he's a graphic novelist and an artist, and he takes classic novels and he turns those into graphic novels. So Wesley sees Rick, who's a college friend who he collaborates with on his books. He sees a psychologist who's a friend of his father's who comes over to his apartment, and he sees the grocery delivery person. And, and until recently, the delivery person was always the same. But one day, a new delivery person came, a young woman named Happy, who is the grocery owner's daughter. Happy is sort of inserts herself into Wesley's life in a way that others really haven't been brave enough to do. <laughs> she kind of makes herself at home in his apartment, looks at his art, sort of invades his space. And this at first annoys Wesley, and then it turns into something more. I found this to be a super engaging look at a unique relationship. I've really appreciated getting into the head of someone who has agoraphobia and this type of mental illness. And I think, you know, we have talked on the show before, Carrie, about people who suffer with mental illnesses can do great things. And Wesley isn't just sitting around his apartment doing nothing. He's creating and he he's inventing. Um, so if you like art, there are many references to art pieces in the book because Wesley is an artist and his mind often goes to images of art. And the author has a post on her Instagram where she shows the pictures of the art that she references. And I thought that was really cool. So this is a short book, but I enjoyed spending time with Wesley and Happy. And again, the name of this book is Wesley Yorstad Goes Outside by Stephanie Hunter. And it is with Writing Brave Press. I think like I think that. you would too. But you're a little bit of a germaphobe. And so when I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, I think Carrie would like this. But would it give her ideas? Because I don't want her to get concerned <laughs> about some of the things in this book. 
Look, I have been dealing with this since I was a kid. There is no disease I haven't already worried about or thought of. Okay. It's almost impossible. I'll put it on my never-ending TBR list. Well, let's take another quick break. Before we come back, a book lover from Australia is going to tell us about her five-star read. It's Phoebe from Devoured Pages here. When Amy asked me my favourite book, my brain usually answers with the rainbow wheel of death. Mac users will get this reference. But in the end, I always refer people to the stories that were my gateway books to the fantasy genre. The book being The Ill-Made Mute, which is book one of the Bitterbine trilogy by Cecilia Dart Thornton. Book one begins with the tale of woe of a non-vocal amnesiac who awakens disfigured in the servants' quarters of a castle. They begin work there as they heal and try to remember who they are and where they've come from. Desperate for knowledge and to escape the mistreatment they receive, the main character sets off to find answers and adventure. It is a story of love, war and finding oneself, literally and figuratively, wrapped within the magical lore of the British Isles. If you are a lover of lyrical prose, folklore and a dash of romance, then I cannot recommend this trilogy enough. We are back with Kika Hazapulu, author of Threads That Bind, a YA novel that blends Greek mythological characters and detective police procedural. And we're going to do the Fast and Furious with you, Kika. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Your favorite breakfast food? Uh, I really love waffles, but I never actually have waffles for breakfast. I mostly eat fruit like apples, bananas, strawberries. How do you feel about like if you go out somewhere and you get waffles and the waffles are covered sky high with other stuff? Is that good or is that too much? Um, it depends on what kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I like chocolate and uh, like bananas and uh, I don't know what do they do. They like do strawberries uh, or strawberries. Yeah, I don't love whipped cream and pizza kind of um, syrups. Yeah. Well, I have a question because my husband and I went to Greece uh, probably 10 years ago for a big anniversary, and pretty much everywhere we went, they served olives at breakfast, which I grew to love olives while I was in Greece. But was that a standard thing that you would normally eat for breakfast, or was that just for tourists? Uh, Probably just for tourists. I have never heard of that. (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't think so okay i mean Um, they had eggs and they i mean they had other things too i mean it wasn't just olives but there was always olives available which i at the Mm -hmm. time was puzzled about but then i kind of grew to love because i could just eat olives all day long because olives were so good yeah yeah that's true and it's a good burst of like saltiness for the morning yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. okay all right next question fish or chips or spanakopita uh definitely smanakopita ideally my mom's but i'm also very fond of um fish and chips in like a greek way so a traditional summer meal in greece is a greek salad a taramas bread and then fried zucchini fried red mullet green sardines i love that as well mm. hmm. so when you say fish and chips in the greek way is there something like is there like a squeeze of lemon on it or is there something that makes it Greek? I think it's just a, a different kind of uh, fish. So it's not 
cod. Uh, I think mm. fish is uh, fish and chips is cod, but in Greece it's like tons and tons of other things as well. Right. Okay. <laughs> summer or winter? Ooh, I love summer. Summer is the obvious answer. I do not like the heat waves, but that's where we are currently at as a planet. Mm. So that's true. Although I kind of like winter. I actually am a person who likes winter. I feel like it's cozy and it's a really good excuse to snuggle down and read a book and not feel guilty that you should be outside doing something nice yeah. outside. Well, so, Where are you guys uh, based at? Because in London, they, my one qualm about the winter is that the sun sets around 3 p.m., which is so oh, interesting. No, we are, we are in Louisville, Kentucky, but we yes, it, we don't get sunsets that early in the winter. It's, it's the better. shortest part of the year. Maybe it sets at 5.30. Okay, that's Yeah, perfect. so it's, it's a little bit better. But I do remember we visited London right after Christmas, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. And I was stunned how early the sun set. I did not realize that it set that early. It was it was a little alarming the first day because I, I right? thought, is the world ending? Why is the sun setting so early? <laughs> Which Greek god, Zeus or Poseidon? I guess Poseidon because I like the sea. I'm not, but I'm not entirely uh, like fond of the men in the Greek pantheon. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. This stone blind. I'm like, seriously, guys, did all you all do is rape women? Like, that's all they did. Yeah. It's just rape women. It's no, I agree best. with you. Stories. Jeans, skirts, or shorts? Mm, uh, skirts. Long skirts. I have so many of them. I love them. I do too. I have a lot of skirts. I find that they are just so much more comfortable. And in the summertime when it's hot, they're much, much cooler, I find. That's true. Yeah. Much cool. So, okay. I agree. Can I ask you a rapid fire question? Sure. All right. Uh, so out of all the characters uh, with powers that appear in um, Threads That Bind, which kind of power would you like to have? So we have the fates we have the furies we have the muses we have the keras we are which are goddesses of death we have the Onri, gods of dreams we have the asclepius gods of healing which would you be oh Akira, you're gotta be the goddess of you, you have to be the one with death because you're a little obsessed <laughs> with death i am a little <laughs> obsessed with death yeah that would probably be me although i like there's something about the Furies too that <laughs> just because I, I there's something about them that speaks to me as well. Right. So yes. I don't know. That's a tough call. Okay. Ooh, I didn't know the tables were going to be turned. I'm not prepared. <laughs> uh, I like the idea of healing, but but honestly, probably the dreams because you like I to really sleep. you're a good I neighbor. really like to sleep, and I think that would be right up my alley. Yeah, that's my answer. Uh, yeah. Well, that's fun. You're the first person who's ever turned the tables on us, and I loved it. I loved it. Good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed. <laughs> well, Kika, we are so pleased that you joined us from London. We're so glad you made time for us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, your questions were great. Our conversation was great. It was overall such fun. I really, really enjoyed doing it. Oh. 
You can find Kika at her website, Kika, K-I-K-A, Hazapulu, H-A-T-Z-O-P-O-U-L-O-U.com, and on Insta at Kika Hazapulu. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabooklover.pod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, send us a message, go to our website, and there's a contact form that you can click on. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.